Well, they're very challenging words, and I, I don't know, I search my own heart. You can search yours. Is it, is it true? Or do we uh, just mouth words? It's certainly straight from the Scriptures. Romans is a magnificent letter inspired by the Spirit through this mighty Apostle Paul, who's now in the realms of glory, uh, awaiting the final trumpet himself and that uh, meeting together in the air. But after he's given this magnificent rendering, inspired by the Spirit of the Gospel, I mean, chapters 1 to 11, we can truly say, wow, this is just incredible. Can this be true? And time, you've got to pinch yourself. Is, is it true? Now, apart from the work of the Spirit in my own soul, I could never believe these things. They really are extraordinary that God should send his Son to die for me. Jesus died for me. The simplest rendition of the gospel. Can, can you say that? Well, that's Romans chapter 1 to 11. I mean, Paul expands on that, inspired by the Spirit. But if Romans chapters 1 to 11 are wow, Romans 12 onwards ought to be ow. Because in the light of the gospel, my life must change. And it's a battle. Paul says in Romans 7, I know the battle, he says, the good I would do, I don't do. The wrong I shouldn't do, I find up doing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? Well, the day coming, thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But chapters 12 to 16 ought to be deeply challenging. If we can sit comfortably through them, there's something wrong with the preacher or the hearer. There's nothing wrong with the word. And in particular, chapter 12, he gives this banner heading, verses 1 to 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, in view of the mercies of God, to present your bodies, something you do now, as a living sacrifice. Old Testament sacrifice is dead, but you're a sacrifice, but you're a living one, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, or the logical conclusion of the gospel's message. Do not, and he has to say this because there are many Christians in Rome and uh, around about today, all of us, do not conform to this world. Great pressures in the world to conform. You know, what's right and wrong? Well, it changes, doesn't it, with consensus and different uh, decades. I mean, there are things acceptable today, which just back 20, 30 years ago would have been anathema. You never thought it would be possible. Now, if you speak against it, you're in big trouble. But the word of God remains the same. So don't be conformed, don't be squeezed by the world into its mould, but rather be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's through the word, by the Spirit. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and, and perfect. So that's the banner, banner headline. How do I serve God? Well, I use the gifts that he's given to me. I don't have any gifts. Yes, you do. Otherwise, you're not a Christian, because every Christian receives gifts. And that's verses 3 to 8. But then we're pulled up short by verse 9. We might have gifts, but unless they're used with grace, we might as well not use the gifts at all. Let love be genuine. Love mustn't be a veneer. Something we can paint on, but it uh, rubs away very easily. 
And then he goes through this list that we looked at last Sunday afternoon. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honour. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. Now it's clear that's relating particularly to our fellow believers and it ought to be deeply challenging because we're just not like that. But now it's ratcheted up and in a sense many commentators say verses 14 to 21 now relate to the unconverted world but I'm not so sure I do believe a lot of these situations arise within the church. So we need to apply grace within the church because he's going to move on to opposition that we face now. And how do we deal with opposition as Christians and how do we confront those who persecute us? And that ought to be outside the church. But we know from experience it can happen within the church. And then we can get it in the neck from one another and brothers and sisters it ought not to be it ought not but it is and we're pulled up short here and we're told how to behave and how to respond and the headline verse is verse 14 bless those who persecute you bless and do not curse them so a Christian's response to opposition those who persecute you, those who do evil, those who seek to harm you. Could that happen within the church? Well, answer the question for you. Have you experienced anything like it within the Christian church that somebody would try to harm you and wish ill for you? Is it possible? Well, if it weren't, uh, the letters wouldn't have been written. <laughs> They're written to churches. And they can harm us in many ways mainly outside the church, let's accept that. It can be physical harm, mental harm, emotional harm, financial harm. How, how do we deal with that? Well, there is a worldly response and there's a, a Christian response. And the worldly response, I suppose, goes back to, um, to verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. And the world would uh, seek revenge. It would seek to curse and to slander somebody who opposes me, undermine them, get the gossip machine going, get, get your case up front. It happens in politics, doesn't it, that uh, cabinet members are undermined by other cabinet members who uh, get the newspapers in, they've got a juicy story against uh, the honourable gentleman. This honourable gentleman thinks this about this honourable gentleman. It happens in politics, it certainly happens in the world. Laugh at their downfall. Be, be happy when they have a fall. It serves them right. Maybe and a, a common response to those who oppose you is just to avoid them. I'll just keep out of their way. I don't have to uh, associate with them. That's the world's response, but the Christian response is quite different. Second part of verse 2 there. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It's counter to everything that there is in the world. When people oppose us, we don't behave by God's grace as the world behaves. Now take their example. Well, 
That's the example I've had in my family and my, my employer does it this way and my mates do it this way. No, Christianity is quite counter to the world. So we're not following the pattern of the world. We're following primarily the Lord Jesus Christ. So in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 23, that's 2 Peter. 1 Peter 2 and verse 23, when he, that's Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued. He didn't do nothing. He wasn't neutral. What did he do? He continued. There's something wonderful about that word. He kept on throughout those 33 years, particularly the three-year ministry. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 12, something very, very similar. And verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. The Christian response to opposition is, is governed certainly primarily by verse 9 here again. Let love be, be genuine, this, this agape. And that flows from the gospel, chapters 1 to 11. And in the gospel, God deals with us quite contrary to what we deserve. So you get that verse, um, Romans 5 and verse 8. God demonstrates his own love to us in this. When we become better... He sent his son to die for us. Oh, nonsense. He'd never have come at all. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And then in verse 10 of that chapter, we're told he dies for his enemies. So he dies for the ungodly sinners who are his enemies. And this is the love of God. And that's the example. Consider Jesus. And so my Christian response through the Holy Spirit poured out into our hearts, is that we should uh, bless. Bless those who persecute us. Here it is, verse 14 then. Bless those who persecute. It's repeated. Bless those who persecute you. Bless, and then the negative, do not curse. Uh, this word bless, the Greek eulogio, uh, invoke a blessing on those who persecute you. Invoke a blessing on them. Jesus spoke much about persecution, how to uh, respond and what the position would be, though he would be persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you so here's the command from God to you and me tonight to those who oppose us and persecution is a strong word that comes this is how we are to respond we're to respond by blessing them and it's more than just a word Clearly, it's more than a word. In fact, if, you know, it, 
It'd be like throwing pet on the fire if somebody's reviling you. Say, oh, bless you. It clearly means not, a, not just in what you're saying. There's an attitude here. Here's a quotation from John Calvin that uh, Hendrickson uh, picks up. Bless those who persecute you. I have said that this is more difficult than to let go revenge when anyone is injured. For though some restrain their hands and are not led away by the passion of doing harm, yet they wish some calamity or loss would in some way happen to their enemies. All right, I won't take revenge. But I really hope they come a cropper. No, no, you see, bless them. Invoke a blessing on them. And he goes on. And even when they are so pacified that they wish no evil on their enemy, there is yet hardly one in a hundred who wishes well to him from whom he has received an injury. Nay, most men daringly burst forth in imprecations. But God, by his word, not only restrains our hands from doing evil, but also subdues the bitter feelings within, and not only so, but he would have us be solicitous for the well-being of those who unjustly trouble us and seek our destruction. Well, what about that? And may it start in the life of the church. (laughs) To begin there, to invoke a blessing on each other. Oh, we could all do each other down. I'm not happy with how that's done or how this is run or what so-and-so's doing and why doesn't so-and-so do this? Why doesn't the church do this? Why doesn't the church do... Well, who is the church? It's you and me. It's the bride of Christ. We should be careful how we speak about Christ's bride. He loves her very much. Enough to die for her and to speak against each other is a desperately wicked thing to do. Yeah, we must deal with sin, but uh, love covers a multitude of sins, you know. Many things that uh, God has forgiven us in Christ, and how much should we forgive, bear and forbear with each other? So within the church, certainly, but in the world and the opposition that we might receive, to be the only Christian in a family, perhaps, and the ridicule, Maybe at work there are difficulties for righteousness sake. Don't suffer for being a fool. There's no blessing on that. But to suffer for a righteous stand is what we might expect to have to happen uh, in the world. Bless those who persecute you. There's the great headline banner. To come from the heart and to not only do no evil against them, seek revenge, uh, don't, don't wish anything evil on them, but very positively to be powerfully praying that good would come to them. Why? Well, because we've got an eternal perspective that the world hasn't got. And this world is such a small spark of vapour. Swift to its close ebbs out life's little day. And then we're launched in forever. Well, then there are a number of injunctions that come. Verse 15, sympathise with each other. So within the church and outside the church, rejoice with those who rejoice 
and weep with those who weep. I was thinking this morning, I think it was in the prayer, I wonder which is the easier or the more difficult. We can often weep with those who, who weep. There's a sympathetic feeling. What about rejoicing with those uh, who rejoice? We're told to do uh, the both. And, and Jesus firmly commends this in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Love your neighbour as yourself. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. There's the enemy uh, in great need, uh, a Samaritan, a Jew in great need, a Samaritan comes by and, and, and helps him. He puts himself where the injured party is and, and he helps him. Uh, he, he loves him as he would love himself. He's weeping with the one who weeps. And we need to do that to be sympathetic towards each other. Uh, verse 16 links very much with verse 18. Live in harmony with each other. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Verse 18, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. But verse 16, it's interesting. Live in harmony with one another. Verse 18, if possible, live peaceably with all. Live in harmony with one another. This Greek word now, harmony, phroneo, to expand it a bit, means, means this. Live in harmony, live with understanding with one another. Why isn't so-and-so at the prayer meeting? Why, why isn't so-and-so serving here? Do, do you know what so-and-so's life is, is like? Have you spent any time getting to know their circumstances and their situation. Come alongside. Live in understanding. And this takes time. It takes time. It takes time to get to know your neighbour. Why he behaves as he does. To spend time. Have a coffee uh, with him. Chat over the garden fence. Make some time. Pray for opportunities. Live in understanding with one another. Live in harmony. Put yourself in their shoes is another way of looking at this. All this takes time. It's not easy. There are qualifiers here in verse 18. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. It takes two to tango, they say. Maybe somebody just is not willing to spend any time with you and is not willing to live in peace with you. Then you've done all that you can. You've done all that you can. Verse 17 and verse 19, certainly do not take personal revenge. Repay no one, evil for evil. Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves. So in verse 17, all categories, repay no one, evil for evil. And verse 19, at all times, never Avenge yourselves. Very, very high standard. Rather, on the contrary to taking revenge and repaying evil for evil, rather, verse 17, give thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all. Somebody has wronged you. The neighbours know that it's, it's happened. They might expect you to uh, set up your defence and go on to the... Attack, but, but you don't. You don't. 
he thought to do what is honourable, obeying the injunctions of the Lord and bearing in mind, leave it to the wrath of God, verse 19, for his written vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So you do what is right in the sight of others. So others are watching. How are you going to respond to some ill that's been done to you or me? And you respond in a way that's quite contrary to what the world might do. You don't take revenge. You don't badmouth them. You don't undermine them. You don't do a character assassination. You don't big yourself up. And the neighbours start to say, well, that's right what he's doing there. I admire that. It's something I could never do. How can they possibly bear and forbear in such a way? And as we live in that way, quite contrary to the culture around about us, what is happening is this. Gospel power is being displayed in radically transformed lives. And people sit up and take notice. If we're just like the world, what have we got to say? (laughs) The gospel has no power if we're just like the world. But where the rubber hits the road and where we're under the mill and we're being persecuted and attacked in so many ways, but we're not defending ourselves, we're not undermining our enemy. In fact, we're blessing them and wishing them well and good and the world can't understand that. And they start to reckon there must be something in this gospel. Because it's being displayed in a radically transformed life. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Another injunction, and we've touched on it already, latter part of verse 19. So rather than take personal vengeance, Uh, leave it to the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. See, if you or I take personal vengeance, what we're doing is we're playing God. We're usurping his position. And if we've got a view of the gospel and who God is and the end of all things, and that time is just a mere parenthesis, then we can leave it to him. Because there's coming a day when all accounts will be settled. What was said in a quiet corner will be shouted from the rooftops. And everything will be made clear. And if we believe in that day, we can truly leave things with him. And be content. And be at peace. And not seek to have to justify ourselves. It's very tiring, you know. And we lose sleep over it. And we have to think about our strategy all the time. The Christian strategy is to, well, leave it to the Lord. He knows. He will settle things. I will look to do them good. And that's what comes out in verse 20. Instead of seeking vengeance, to the contrary. Rather, on the other hand, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. He's fallen on hard times and you take a, food parcel around for him. If he's thirsty, give him something uh, to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. That's not the reason you do it, obviously. You don't want to teach him a lesson by being good. But rather, what's in this? 
by repaying good for the evil that they've done to you. They fall on hard times. Uh, they need mercy. Maybe again, back to the power of the good Samaritan. I don't know what the man who fell among robbers was like. Maybe he was a bit of a, bit of a tyke. And uh, the, the, uh, then the, the Samaritan comes along and he helps him. And uh, he, he enters where he is. And uh, he didn't deserve it in any way. Maybe he deserved exactly the opposite. But he goes out of his way. He does him good. And what's our motivation? Who knows? Who knows? He's fallen on hard times. He's persecuted you, but then you're looking to do him good as he's fallen into this difficult time. You will heap burning coals on his head. Quotation of the Old Testament there, Deuteronomy. Maybe you're going to waken up his conscience. Maybe he's going to start to think about eternal issues. Who knows? Uh, in doing this, maybe it's going to be an avenue for him to be open to the gospel. And maybe he's going to ask you the question, why are you doing this when I've treated you in such a way? He gets an attack of conscience and a pang there. And it's like burning coals on his head. Why are you? When I've treated you in such a way, well, let me tell you, I have a saviour who treated me so wonderfully when I was such a wicked person in his sight. And in the light of that, I can only seek to do good to all those who are round and about me. And we have these immortal souls. And my friend, let me tell you what he's done for me, he can do for you. So who knows? Who knows? The world goes in one direction. We must be radically different. And these are powerful things. And we, we struggle. And a concluding verse there, then in verse, uh, in chapter 12. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There's a lovely conclusion to the, the whole passage on dealing with opposition. If somebody does you harm and you do harm back to them, then evil wins. Evil wins. You just compounded the problem. If, on the other hand, or contraire, somebody does you harm, but you do good back to them, good wins. And that's the gospel. In the end, good does win. It's like one of these great... Uh, Hollywood stories and books and uh, many good books that have that uh, end and good wins in the end. These redemptive stories, Lord of the Rings and, and Star Wars. Well, the gospel is at the heart of them. Must be gospel inspired because here in the Bible, good wins. It's not evil that wins. The devil wants to get in. He wants to, ah, take revenge. Call them names. Oh, evil wins when that happens. But we're Christians and good wins. And we need to conform, not to the world standard, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. How? How is it possible? Well, we keep in view chapters 1 to 11. We keep in view verses 1 and 2, this appeal that's made by the mercies of God. And we live all, Jesus, all for Jesus, all I have and am and ever hope to be. All my ambitions, hopes and plans I surrender these into your hands. 
always asking, what would you have me do, Lord, with this life that you know me given to me, but bought back in Christ? And how I live that life, let love be genuine. Well, that brings to a conclusion Romans chapter 12. And after a little break of two weeks then, we launch into our relation to uh, authorities, governments, those in authority around and about us. And uh, we'll look at that, God willing, three weeks tonight. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a brief time in your word. We do find that the gospel is glorious, but then when we come to see the application in our lives personally, it's not easy and we need your grace, we need your spirit, or thou who came us from above. We do pray you kindle that flame of sacred love on the mean altar of our hearts. Help us, we pray. Give us strength. By ourselves, we fail utterly. But minister to us, we pray. Empower us to live the life divine to the glory of your name. Amen.